Dialogue and Debate with Cumberland Lodge, our new monthly webinar series. We launched a series last month with Rowan Williams and Sophie Dean talking about the art of reflection in a digital age, and it was great to see so many people tuning in. Today we will be discussing creative approaches to improving interfaith engagement, and I'm delighted to be joined here in the studio today by Dunya Habash, a musicologist and ethnographer studying interreligious and interfaith relations among Syrian refugee communities in Turkey with the Wolf Institute Scholarship at the University of Cambridge. And by Amru Hussein, director of the UK's all-party parliamentary group on freedom of religion or belief. Dunya and Amru have both been involved in guiding discussions at our Emerging International Leaders Programme on Freedom of Religion or Belief this weekend. Together we have explored the ways in which government and non-governmental organisations can resolve tensions around religion or belief in different contexts. So thank you Dunya and Amro for joining us today for this webinar on interfaith and non-faith engagement. We'll be talking about how we can live together with respect towards other faiths and beliefs, including atheistic ones or secular views. We will also explore how government and wider society can work together in this field. So maybe I can start with you, Dunya. Perhaps you can tell us a bit more about what sparked your interest in issues surrounding faith and belief in the first place. Yeah, I think it definitely starts um, with my, my childhood, my background growing up uh, as a Syrian Muslim uh, in Alabama, United States. And for those who are not aware of uh, Alabama in this part of the U.S., it's in the Deep South, um, which is also known as the Bible Belt of America. So uh, growing up as a, a Muslim in this very Christian context was, was very interesting. Um, and so as a young person, I learned that I was you know, the other in this uh, majority society and was constantly engaging with people of other faiths. And, and people of, of other cultures. So, you know, that always kind of made me curious about, um, you know, people who, who believe other things, who have other practices and engage in the world in, in a different way. Mm. And Amra, how about you? What sparked your interest in the work you're doing today, especially mm. the government work you're interested in? Um, so, quite similar, actually, to Dunya's uh, experience. Um, it's a mixture of kind of my personal and professional uh, life. So personally, I also was uh, raised in a Muslim household in the Republic of Ireland in a Catholic community on the border of Northern Ireland. So a lot of exposure kind of to the issues of uh, interreligious dialogue and coexistence. And then professionally, I worked for a charity called Amar, which was focused in Iraq doing, uh, doing a variety of different projects. Uh, including humanitarian relief for people who are displaced by conflict. So again, I got to see the kind of dynamic of different communities and how they live together. And we did projects there trying to encourage communities to live together, working with imams and church leaders and, uh, and civil society. And it was excellent work, but I realized that it's limited if the governments themselves aren't also involved in supporting. So that's kind of what led me to do my work, uh, working with the UK and other governments to promote freedom of religion, I believe. Mm. Mm. Can you tell us a bit more about the, the current role, <coughs> work you're currently doing for the APPG? Yes. Uh, so I support uh, over 100 British parliamentarians from both houses of parliament. 
uh, to raise awareness about freedom of religion or belief issues, but also to engage with other governments and countries to try and encourage them to take uh, pro-forb uh, freedom of religion belief initiatives. So things like encouraging uh, education within schools, things like uh, changing legislation that discriminates or oppresses uh, minority groups, really trying to look at the holistic framework to implement uh, Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which guarantees the right to freedom of religion or belief. Mm. Mm. Great. Dunya, do you want to tell us a bit more about the work you're currently doing in this field? Yes, yeah, so I'm currently working as an outreach officer at the Wolf Institute, which is a, a research centre, an interfaith research centre based in Cambridge, and I'm working particularly on a project that's looking at uh, diasporic faith communities from historical Iraq and Syria who are now in London or the wider UK. And we are trying to basically um, revive a, a multicultural uh, history through music culture, actually, and bring these faith communities now in the diaspora back together. Um, so we do a lot of different outreach um, initiatives, like concerts that we put on that will, you know, get people from the various uh, faith communities together in one room. Um, I also do some programming in schools, so I run uh, short workshops with students to kind of teach them about this uh, uh, multicultural history in, in, in the Middle East, in cities like Aleppo and Damascus and Baghdad, for example, where you had... Um, lots of encounter um, because of uh, very large Jewish, Arab Jewish communities, for example, Arab Christian communities living together with uh, the Muslim majority. So um, this is, this is yeah, kind of the work that I'm, I'm doing now at the Wolf Institute. So very kind of grassroots uh, level. So you're both working in spaces in a professional capacity where you will meet lots of people who are interested in these issues surrounding faith and belief, freedom of religion or belief. But if you look at UK society a bit more broadly, how, how relevant are these issues today? How relevant mm. are issues surrounding faith and belief, do you think, in the public discourse, in the political discourse in this country? Um, mm. Amro, if you want to go first. Yeah, um, well, I think the first thing I'd say about that is that if, <clears throat> if you think that freedom of religion or belief and these issues aren't really that relevant to you or relevant to your life, I would say the chances are you are one of the uh, privileged and increasingly rare people on the planet who actually have that right being honoured. I think um, everyone has beliefs, whether they're religious or secular or otherwise, and uh, freedom of religion and belief protects your right to have those beliefs and also change those beliefs. And that is vital to human dignity and life, but also to other human law rights like freedom of expression and assembly and also to genuine democratic participation. Um, so I think maybe in the UK we can almost take for granted sometimes uh, when we aren't being persecuted for our beliefs, but still has huge relevance here as, we, uh, as you can see in the implications of the anti-Semitism issues that the Labour Party had, for example, mm. during the election. And it has huge relevance globally because the fact is the majority of the world's population live in countries where they are persecuted uh, or live in countries where there is persecution exists uh, for faith. Uh, but I think there is maybe a growing awareness of this importance, um, particularly as we see kind of huge disasters globally, like um, the situation of the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar or Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. And Dunya, you obviously grew up in the United States, which is in many ways a more religious country than, than the United Kingdom. 
How relevant are issues surrounding faith and belief here? How much do they influence the public conversation in the United Kingdom? Perhaps even in comparison with the situation you know from, from growing up in the, in the Bible Belt of, of the United States of America. <laughs> um, I actually think, yeah, very, very relevant. And to bring a concrete example, um, so I do also a lot of volunteer work with uh, new Syrian migrants who have uh, come to the UK. Um, and, you know, they are, you know, this, this faith and sexuality law that came out about teaching sexuality in schools. Um, it was a big thing here in the UK a year ago. And um, I sat in and listened to many conversations among um, uh, these Syrian families talking about how they couldn't believe that, you know, the, the state or the, the British government is enforcing this very particular way of thinking about sexuality. Some of them tried to pull their kids out of the lessons. I mean, it was really a, a very strong um, encounter with, uh, with this issue. So I think it's still very, very relevant because for many communities, uh, sometimes they, they encounter these top-down policies um, like very viscerally and um, maybe we don't pay attention too much to, to what's happening to, to people in those communities when suddenly the UK government decides that it's just going to, across the board, uh, teach this. Um, I don't, I'm, I'm not even sure exactly what they were teaching in the classes. I just know that it stirred up a lot of concern in uh, many um, Arab Muslim communities here in the UK. So um, in America, there's I haven't quite seen something like this. Um, but yeah, America is just a different, a different <laughs> place. So. <laughs> Now, it's interesting you, you raised that point, because I think what it also illustrated is that suddenly these issues can kind of explode and almost take a lot of people by surprise. What do you think it reveals <coughs> about the extent of religious literacy in mm. this country? Because, mm. yes, suddenly an issue becomes really important and people discuss it, but is the discussion really informed? What, what does your observation tell you about the amount of religious literacy, the extent of religious literacy in debates surrounding, for example, sex education in this case? I think, yeah, I think this is one of the biggest issues um, in kind of multicultural societies like, like the UK, like the United States. We don't know enough about the other. I'm going to say the other in that sense, um, meaning that we, we really don't know the details of the theology, of the way of thinking, the kind of life world of these people. Um, and I think that's, if we can start there, just both sides to understand, we could really clear up a lot of misunderstandings. Because I also think um, a lot of these uh, Muslim communities in particular reacted so strongly to this. I think, first of all, they didn't really understand what was being taught. So that's, you know, a communication problem in and of itself is when you come out with these new laws and policies, you need to kind of explain in very clear communication what exactly you're teaching in the schools, um, what's going to happen. I mean, who's going to be involved, what student, I mean, just kind of more clear communication instead of just coming out in the news and saying UK adopts new sexuality teaching and people start just freaking out. So um, so in general, but I think also people making these policies need to understand that there are sensitivities around these issues and, and they need to understand more than just that people are going to react negatively. They need to really understand why, why people might be sensitive to this issue, what the historiography of that sensitivity is and how it really fits theologically in these very different communities' worldviews. I just think, you know, better knowledge can really help clear up uh, this misunderstanding that, that happens constantly mm. with these very big issues. 
What was your experience, Amra? Because you work in in a field that is also interested in freedom of religion or belief, mm. but how much knowledge, how much awareness, how much literacy is there mm. when you have these discussions with parliamentarians, with people in power, with people who can really drive policy change? What, what's been your experience in that field? I think um, it reflects the level in society generally oftentimes um, that it is limited, maybe the extent of religious literacy that we have in, in countries like the UK and elsewhere. Um, you know, if you take the man off the street, how much does he or, you know, or the man or woman off the street, how much does he or she know about the contribution of Sikhs to British life or what actually the details of the beliefs of Sikhism are exactly. And um, I think that, you know, you have this interaction with people or you see them in communities maybe, but whether you actually understand their beliefs or their day to day lives and kind of what life is like for them, I don't think that exists. And at a government level, I think that issue is replicated also. I think there is a lot of scope and room for literacy training um, about different religions and beliefs. But beyond that as well, not simple just trying to acquaint people with theology, for example, but really trying to understand uh, humanity and, and most importantly, how it feels to have a, a faith or belief to which you have a strong conviction. I think sometimes we have the feeling that if I am secular, um, I can't relate to someone who has a really strong religious belief. But I mean, in my experience for, you know, mostly being predominantly secular in my life, I hold that secularism quite strongly as well. But just when you're in an environment when everyone more or less is secular, you don't think about that. But we really have to think about the how important these beliefs are to people. And, you know, that relates to Tony's point about really thinking about the sensitivity of how these things and policies are going to be, you know, uh, interpreted. And in addition to that, one of the big changes is will regard the role of the Church of England, the mm -hmm. Anglican Church in this country, in England especially, because it used to be the dominant church mm -hmm. for centuries. But mm -hmm. if current trends continue, it's set to become one of, of many minority mm -hmm. churches. How do you think this new religious landscape is going to affect the work you do on freedom mm -hmm. of religion or belief? Is it something you've, you've, you've looked at, you've worked at, mm -hmm. uh, you've worked around, Amaral? So it's a really interesting question. And it, it's hard to say, really, uh, because I think it can really go lots of different ways. It's kind of, it's not, I don't know if there's an inherent impact on freedom, freedom of religion or belief, but it depends on how people in the state react to it. So the growth of lots of different minority religions um, could lead to uh, increasing tensions, the government could respond negatively, crack down on freedom of religion and belief and cause more issues. Or on the other hand, what you might get is a more pluralistic and a more accepting society where people are more exposed to different communities, where the government is incentivized to make sure that all different types of faiths and uh, beliefs are taught in religious education in schools, for example. And you might have different communities uh, treated more equitably. I mean, the thing that occurs to me now is that in the House of Lords, there's lots of uh, you know, places specifically for uh, bishops from the Church of England. And uh, lots of groups would say that's unequitable, you know, an equitable treatment for a different religious group. Um, so that might change, that kind of thing. Um, but it really, really just depends on how people react to it, I feel, and what the policies implemented by the state are and whether they're positive. Mm -hmm. Great. So yeah, you're looking at the state a lot mm -hmm. and politics, but do you know you work also in the arts and culture sector? Mm -hmm. So what do you think the contributions of that sector can be towards producing greater interfaith understanding, interfaith engagement, and, and ideally interfaith harmony? I think um, it can be key if it 
if it, if good work is being done and um yeah especially media um videos you know things that have uh really well crafted narratives about um inter i don't see a lot of that stuff you know and it you know young people today that is their main source of knowledge and information about the world is is these short videos they see on facebook or on youtube or i mean i have i have young brothers i know that this is this is the way they they learn about the world around them and i feel like yes if more interfaith kind of uh narratives get out there or even more just religious literacy narratives um are are you know they can be very powerful tools in kind of shaping the next uh generation's kind of imagination about the other or other communities and then other ways of life but i think i think it is key i think education and knowledge is going to be key to really like having proper understanding between these communities because we're going to keep living together britain will probably become continue becoming more and more multicultural same in the us i mean this is just the way of you know the post globalization world that we live in so i think it's very important that we learn more and more more deeply also about uh, the communities that we encounter every every single day so i do think yes the the arts and media sector have a big role to play in this um they just need to to do some some more work i think what would you say are the biggest challenges in that sector what are the biggest challenges to improving interfaith understanding and engagement especially in the arts and culture sector that you mm-hmm. you know best it's hard there are many things first of all there's not enough funding mm-hmm. in general there's not enough funding for anything these days but especially arts and culture and humanities in general i mean that funding is is really being cut i mean especially in the united states for example so this is a this is already we we have a huge problem in terms of in general um we don't really trust the humanities anymore or we th- we don't see them as as things that you know can refine human uh, thinking and character unfortunately they just get pushed mm-hmm. to the side so that's the first thing another thing is obviously dealing with the politics on the ground when you're working with with communities who have very firm beliefs about their particular narrative of the world uh their particular narrative of uh certain parts of the world that are still undergoing lots of conflict and tension um so when you come in with your very good intention project cultural diplomacy let's you know let's talk about our interfaith interconnected histories um it doesn't always translate very quickly uh because people are still so entrenched in 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 the politics and the oppression and the you know the narratives that that they have grown up with and i i don't know what the solution is to this but this is a big barrier i think is just dealing with with the politics on the ground and getting people to kind of put those things aside really have dialogue you know with each other uh based on these other kinds of identities um so yeah i think i think those are probably the two biggest barriers in terms of working in the field and you mentioned politics on the ground i guess that's a, it's a cue for you amro <laughs> yeah, yeah. what do you think are the biggest challenges for bringing people of different faiths and beliefs together in a way that can be productive and constructive and create understanding engagement and interfaith harmony yeah so kind of maybe building a bit on what Antonio said um i really think probably the main issues are a uh, lack of substantive exposure to other communities and their humanity and uh, education in a very broad sense including storytelling about uh, others beliefs and um and their contribution to life um i 
I think it's, you know, it's harder to have distrust or mistrust or kind of hostility and prejudice towards communities if you are watching them on sitcoms every day or, you know, if you're engaging with their lives through mediums of television and through stories and narratives about them. Um, you know, uh, a good example from uh, Ireland's recent history of uh, LGBT rights is um, I think the there was a very strong impact of kind of cinema and storytelling that normalized kind of uh, LGBT plights, LGBT plights in their communities. And that really helped uh, Ireland move from a very kind of anti-LGBT society to one that was very generally supportive. So I think that kind of education and exposure is really, really vital because without it, there creates an absence or a space in which fear can can, you know, enter. Sometimes, you know, intentionally as well for political or economic purposes. So we really have to fill that space through education and exposure. And I guess one particular challenge mm. for the UK government, for local authorities, might mm. be conservative mm-hmm. religious communities. Mm. Because talking about freedom of religion or belief on an abstract high policy level is great, but it has to filter <laughs> yeah. down. Yeah. So what can the government do or what can local authorities do to engage the communities yeah. that might be following a theology and an interpretation that makes them reject other other worldviews and makes them refuse to engage with those of, of different faiths? Yeah, it's a really good question, a tough one. Um, I think, I mean, the first thing is to try and promote the kind of the importance and value of freedom, religion, belief, just societally, I would say anyway. So the context in the society that you have is one that uh, promotes coexistence and tolerance through kind of mass media or art or just major news media. So to create that kind of environment. Uh, and then beyond that, I think it's really about building trust. And there is there are no quick solutions really to it. It's about really engaging these communities, uh, inviting them to air their grievances or their concerns, um, and then hopefully getting them to do that, particularly in contexts where there are other faith actors and other groups, and really get that slow exposure to interfaith dialogue and inclusion in local and national events, um, and ideally be able to uh, you know increase their interaction with other groups slowly but like as I said it can't be done quickly it really needs to be built up over a period of time mm. Mm. and I guess you and your work as outreach officer you have to reach out to communities and of course it's easy to preach to the choir to reach yeah. those who are already interested in talking mm-hmm. to you but how do you engage more conservative communities who might not naturally be inclined or theologically be inclined mm-hmm. To speak to others, to 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 encounter differences in the first place. This is a very difficult and good question. Um, I don't really have an answer to it other than what mm. Amro said about it's it's just going to take time. Um, I think yeah, most importantly, I I always think about like on a personal level. Um, I I believe in freedom of you know religion and and belief very strongly. You know, um, and therefore. As, as my responsibility is to also allow that to other people, even if these other people might have very conservative views of the world that I really don't disagree, don't agree with, um, but just as a general principle. And I think in, in public society or in the public sphere, we don't give those groups enough kind of airspace because we're constantly attacking them, constantly shaming them. Um, and I think this could be part of the hostility that, that they kind of react to. 
Um, I don't know a way around it because sometimes it's it's that typical question with freedom of expression, right? You know, do you allow a society to have full freedom of expression even if you're going to get like racist people saying very horrible things out in the public sphere, or do you suppress? And it's it's a it's a very difficult question. But I do think in general promoting as much respect and and giving people an equal platform could kind of curb some of the tensions because sometimes people just want to be heard you know they just want their opinion to be out in the public so i don't know if that really answers your question but that's that's <laughs> things that i've been thinking about is that a conversation that's happening in the policy space as well uh, definitely in terms of it happens a lot when you're talking about kind of engaging when we engage with other countries and um, and try and share experiences from the UK and elsewhere about how you engage with those conservative communities but like I said like then you said I think that is the issue it's really about uh, building trust and hopefully trying to integrate to the extent that you can have discussions and uh, support and sometimes also thinking about kind of ways to incentivize I suppose so uh, I know in international programs that some kind of multilateral institutions have done sometimes you will have you know modules on freedom of belief incorporated within you know capacity building programs so we're helping you to do this thing or this thing but we're also teaching you about human rights more broadly sometimes the language isn't human rights but it'll be something like inclusive citizenship you know how you respect your brothers and your sisters inside your country and your community and that kind of thing and um, so yeah those are some kind of ways we try to get around the issue Mm. And you just mentioned other countries, yeah. other contexts. How mm. successful is the UK in promoting freedom of religion or belief <laughs> around the world? Yeah, I, mean, I think I think the UK and, to be honest, most countries are only really getting into this issue in a very serious way in the last few years. And um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think people are beginning to have a bigger and bigger awareness of the impact of not having this right respected globally in terms of conflict, in terms of economics, in terms of uh, radicalization. You know, it has a big impact. So there are tentative steps out into the world. There's a lot of uh, diplomacy, um, but whether this is being translated now into grassroots initiatives and movements really to promote freedom of religion belief, I think it's still in its infancy at the moment. So I don't think we can claim to have any two great successes at the moment, but hopefully it's building in that direction. And of course, with lots of things happening in UK politics, um, <laughs> whether it's Brexit or trade negotiations, mm. how much capacity or interest is there in promoting freedom of religion or belief internationally yeah. at the moment? Limited, I'd say, to be honest. Um, it, yeah, I mean, as you say, I mean, uh, Brexit as an issue over the last few years did limit some of the uh, policy space available to discuss these kinds of things. And also there is a risk um, that in the future uh, the British government might be less willing to raise human rights violations with other countries because of fear of it damaging trade negotiations. It also provides an opportunity to make sure that any trade deals that are developed have you know, robust protections around freedom of religion or belief. But I think a lot of people are very worried that human rights are the first thing that goes out of the window uh, at when it comes after you know, trade and economics. And turning this question around a bit, Dunya, you've worked a lot in, in Turkey, looking at Syrian communities uh, in diaspora, refugee uh, communities. What is there that you might have picked up 
in Turkey regarding either government or grassroots initiatives that could be something that the UK or other Western nations could learn from um, in trying to improve relations, understanding, interfaith harmony, or the ways in which governments respond to, to tensions or misunderstanding that might arise among people from different ethnic, religious, cultural backgrounds? Um, I think uh, that's quite a difficult question. Um, but just because the, the particular case of Syrians in Turkey is, is so precarious, yeah. and so uh, like their, their time there is liminal, it's, they don't know if they're staying, if they're leaving. I mean, it's, it's a very uh, hostile, almost hostile environment, but also recognizing that this hostility built up over time, which I find the most curious thing about kind of Turkey's response to the three million Syrian refugees who, who crossed into its borders. Um, the beginning, of course, there was this uh, kind of Muslim Ummah solidarity narrative that went around that these are muhajirin, just like the Prophet was a muhajir from Mecca to Medina. So there was a lot of like theological um, terminology that was used to kind of welcome Syrians at the beginning. But of course, over time, once three million settled in Turkey and of course, all of the kind of economics uh, crisis that you know, was perceived um, the threats of, of, of losing kind of uh, economic and political rights and all of the kind of tensions, the typical tensions that arise when, you know, large communities um, get displaced into different host societies. As those emerged, that, you know, original um, open arms narrative kind of decayed a little bit. And now the situation is quite different in terms of like Turkish response to the Syrians. So I think this is particularly telling in terms of like how governments can change so easily their policies, their way of thinking about a situation. Like just in the matter of a few years, the, the stance towards Syrians completely shifted in the opposite direction. Um, and, you know, a lot of it had to do with, of course, economics at the end of the day, which becomes like the big, the, the key factor in, in kind of the, the political scene and the political arena. Um, so I don't, I don't know if we can really draw anything yet from, from what's happening in Syria, just because things are still shifting and changing. Um, but I do think that that's an important lesson to remember, that things are always changing and shifting, and that's something you have to deal with as a politician, as anyone working in, in any field trying to accomplish any kind of intention or agenda or initiative. So you have to constantly be looking for what's happening in the way and in the way today's world how you know an event can happen across the world and then suddenly change everything in your kind of sphere of life just through reading about it on the media i think is quite it's it's crazy almost how fast people can change their opinions and minds and 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 things just from you know finding out about particular events in, in other parts of the world so this these are new things i think we're having to deal with as well as educators, as practitioners, as politicians, um, the speed with which uh, things and ideologies change and shift. I'm not sure if that answered your question, yeah. Jan. But <laughs> I mean, uh, and it's leading me straight on to Amr. This might be a bit speculative, but to what extent is there something to take away from how intra-faith relations have been managed? Sectarian tensions, perhaps in Northern Ireland, you mm. said you grew up near the border mm. between Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland, and of course, Dunya talked about you know, relations between Muslims and Muslims from different countries. So, mm. something in that encounter, in the lessons that have been learned regarding mm. sectarian 
intrafaith relations that can help us promote freedom of religion or belief more broadly? Yeah, I, th- I think I think the lessons there are kind of the, the the lessons just for dealing with kind of religious conflict generally. I and mean, it comes back to things like um, education and exposure again as well. Well, in the case of an active conflict like Northern Ireland, of course, there is real questions like of justice and reconciliation and, and those kind of things. Um, but the uh, you know moving forward, it still is about exposure. Um, you know, my background, I live in towns that, you know, were essentially segregated and still are but to an extent now. And these residual tensions from that conflict still persist in Northern Ireland. Like, I, I, I wouldn't anyone think leave you with the impression that Northern Ireland is this, you know, perfectly peaceful Shangri-La now. Mm-hmm. Um, the historic tensions still exist, but people are trying to counteract them through the same kind of means for dealing with different religious communities, um, with totally different religious communities, like getting uh, interfaith dialogue there, getting communities to interact, getting people from different schools to engage. And I think about when I worked in Iraq, we had kind of programs where we took uh, children from Sunni schools and Shia schools and Sunni mosques and Shia mosques to go visit other mosques and do that kind of thing. And I'm always struck by uh, a statement that a child uh, who visited a Shia mosque said in in Iraq was that I cannot believe they have the same Quran. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting. And that's kind of the point about education and belief and how these things can, you know, by how they can remedy and ameliorate situations. And I guess extending that when we look at trends towards secularization, mm. um, especially in this country, what is the role that non-religious people and non-religious organizations mm. will play in the future in trying to safeguard freedom of religion or belief? Because of course that includes non-religious or non-theistic mm. beliefs. And if current trends continue by 2040, there might be 60% of people in, mm. in the United Kingdom who identify as non-religious. What role do they play in freedom of religion or belief? Yeah, a huge one. As kind of I said earlier, I'll reiterate that um, freedom of religion belief is as important to the well-being of non-religious people as it is to to religious people. And and as a matter of fact, uh, non-religious people often face some of the worst persecution globally. You know, extreme persecution, like death penalty in certain countries for writing Facebook posts with secular views, or you know, you know, countries like you know like Saudi Arabia, which uh, where atheism is criminalized as a terrorist offense. So, you know, these are huge issues. Um, and I think as, uh, as you say, as the world becomes increasingly secular and particularly Western nations become increasingly secular, but also they increasingly appreciate the importance of, you know, promoting religious tolerance and respect for one another, that, um, yeah, non-religious people will just become more and more and more involved in that situation. And before recording this webinar, we asked the public to submit questions to our guests. So I've got a couple here. How can we respond when harmony has already broken down between religious groups? So rather than thinking about what can be done now, what do you do concretely? And maybe you have examples. Once there has been conflict, violence, something, something that has really destroyed trust. You talked a lot about trust between religious groups. I don't know if Dunya, if you want to go first. Uh, this is this is my essential question doing this work basically, especially since I'm looking at Middle Eastern faith communities, which as we know um, is the especially the Levant uh, region is the center of a lot of conflict. Uh, the most pressing one, of course, being the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, and this is really, really difficult to, you know, beyond getting people from both sides to, to sit down and have conversations with each other, which is actually happening quite regularly with very many different initiatives. 
but it's you know once they once they leave that space you know and they go back and everything's normal again and nothing's really changed in 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 their societies i mean how how much are those kind of interfaith dialogue ideas really translating into real change real social change um in the real world i don't know so this is i think kind of the heart of of like the interfaith industry or or any any organization working on these particular issues is is to really think about kind of how their work is actually translating in in the real world because i think um we're quite lacking actually um and and we need to we need to have more creative solutions i think to to remedy this issue but of course it's it's an issue that's very deep rooted and will take a lot of time and and effort and and thought and i don't know at the moment i don't know if there is such a solution to mm. to these things i don't know what you think <laughs> I, I i think i think you're right i think it's 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 not easy at all and i really have much else to add except to that i think uh it needs maybe a holistic approach and i think that's kind of where we sometimes fail and um, in the sense that we will approach, uh, you know, have schools-based programs, or we'll have, um, you know, lower scale, smaller scale programs, and um, when and you wonder how much that really impacts the whole society. You need maybe to upscale these things and also have them linked to uh, other programs, like as we discussed, kind of art and media and education, because you don't want people coming to participate in a program. Everything is great. It's really lovely and dovey. And then they go back to their individual communities that are still totally polarized and separate and all the good work's gone there. So it's really about trying to figure out a solution that incorporates loads of different facets of society um, so that we can, you know, create an integrative kind of picture. But that is really difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. And, and here's mm-hmm. another question we have. Um, how can we promote harmony and better relations where religious convictions overlap with politics like we're seeing in countries such as India at the moment? Mm. <laughs> yeah, easy questions. <laughs> yes, um, I, honestly, I feel like I was sounding like a bit of a broken record, but I think the, uh, the issues are still are, are one and the same, kind of. Um, now, obviously, there's lots of different nuance and uh, different contextual factors, but even when a case where politics and, and identity intertwine, um, there is... You know, take India, for example, there is very specific and intentional uh, motivations there to align those things and to create this identity of uh, India as a Hindu state. And but that would, you know, there's machinations going on there. People are investing in times into creating this image and to creating this antipathy between groups. And the opposite can also happen as well. You can invest into education and kind of narratives where that's not the case, where your national identity or whoever is based on pluralism or multiculturalism or recognizing the contribution of, you know, in India, Muslims, Buddhists, Sikhs, Jains, and whoever else to the, the glory of India. Mm. Um, so it just takes, you know, people to actually put in the effort, I think. Mm. And you, you work a lot in the Middle East, as you said, in, in the Levant. What's What's specific about the intersection of religion and politics and how can you approach that effectively? That is a very complicated question, Jan. I, I, think, <laughs> I think especially right now, like transition that the Middle East is going through since the Arab Spring, I would say it's a very, uh, it's a region of the world that is in transition into something and everything has changed in the past eight or nine years. Uh, just Syria alone, I mean, the 
the way it has uh, broken up and, and everything it's gone through through the war, almost half its population has been displaced. So I think right now there's just so much to deal with on the ground, just in terms of basic infrastructure and politics. And of course, religion played a big role in, in, the, in the Syrian civil war. So, so it, it had kind of a, an economic effect as well and, and, and these sorts of things. So it's so complex. I don't, I don't really know right now. Like uh, I think in years to come, we'll, we will see kind of more, more vivid uh, um, reality of, of what's happening there and, and the lessons that we can learn in the future. I was reminded a little bit of, I think, um, I, I don't know very much about the, the conflict, but I think it's always cited the, the, um, uh, the Northern Ireland uh, conflict uh, is cited as like um, a good case study of how kind of reconciliation can happen. Mm. I'm not sure about the details of mm. that, but I know in the interfaith world, that's usually like the example of how this thing mm. can work. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything about yeah. that. Um, so um, it is, I mean, it's, it is remarkable uh, to think about the level and the scale of violence that Northern Ireland was experiencing and, and how relatively peaceful uh, it, it is now. And, but it just took a lot of work. And I think it's important to recognize that in the context of Northern Ireland, um, it was, it's a small geographical area um, and the international community was all really invested in remedying the situation. So the US was involved, the UK was involved, there was no geopolitical interest necessary that was causing people to undermine it. So they had all of this support, all of this technical and financial and military support, and it still took years and years and years to get to the table. Um, whereas in the Middle East, obviously, um, there is lots of different competing tensions and stuff. So I think there are lessons to be learned from Northern Ireland, but it, they, the geopolitical environment does, uh, does change it. Yeah. Great. Um, thank, thank you both uh, very much. I think it was a really interesting discussion to think about the ways in which we can provide political frameworks as well as civil society initiatives on, um, on freedom of religion or belief and interfaith harmony. Thank you for joining us. You can find out more about the work of Cumberland Lodge at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk and we hope you'll join us for our next monthly webinar on Thursday the 5th of March at 11am when we will be broadcasting live with the former government minister and group chair of HSBC, Lord Green, and the leading economist, commentator and author, Linda Yu, about humanity's future lessons from the recent past. You'll be able to watch it live online, take part in the live poll and submit questions to our guests. Thank you again, Dunya and Amro, for joining us today. And thank you for watching. Goodbye from Cumberland Lodge.